Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson, and today on Tomes of Magic, we are talking about Devil's Due. In the past, Terry and I have talked about the two different books for Mage that dealt with uh, vile evil, and we learned about the, the servants of great evil spirits from beyond. But you know what? We didn't get the story from the evil spirits from beyond. I mean, what do they have to say? What's their point of view? Actually, I can think of several good reasons why we shouldn't find out, but today we are going to dive into that territory and find out. So before we get into it, uh, Terry, are there any announcements? I recently read Dead Ends on the Storyteller Vault, which is a $4.99 supplement on liches, and I thought it was lovely. I thought it was imaginative and creative, and it had ideas on every page. Okay, just before we wind up the uh, announcement section, I got a copy from a copy of Hol- uh, Adventure to Hollow Earth from Jenna Flores. She was very kind, sent me a PDF copy of that, and so I uh, took a little time and read through it, and I thought it was just amazing. I thought it was so much fun. There were a lot of creative details in there, a lot of different ways you could approach that adventure, and of course, when someone says, hey, let's go to Hollow Earth, you got my attention, because I think there's a lot of fun to be had there. So, And I think it works great as a one-shot. I would actually like to run it as a one-shot at North Texas RPG Con next time I can get out that way and uh, give a report to Jenna Floor on how my session went. But <clears throat> I, I recommend it. I thought it was a lot of fun. It was not very long. So if you want to read through it and run it for somebody, you will be doing that quickly. So thumbs up on that one. But getting back to Devil's Due, this was a supplement for Dark Ages, uh, World of Darkness Dark Ages. It is not specifically a supplement for Mage, but we are covering it because even though demons are not exactly our favorite topic, um, we can't deny that as uh, the servants of demons make great NPC villains. I have used them in my own mage games, although not exactly like this. And so I, uh, Terry and I wanted to take a look at this book and see what potential was there for mage games. This came out in 2004. There were three authors who contributed to it, although I'm not actually familiar with their work. And it clocks in at 151 pages. So Terry, could you uh, start a walkthrough for us? I would be glad to. So... If you find the title Devil's Due confusing, here are some alternate titles I came up with. The first was World of Darkness, but complicated. The second title I came up with was So Many Taints, a Progenitor Perineum Specialist Would Be Proud. And then finally, in no way does this book with charm trees and entities banished to a special hell where they can sense the expenditure of essence, I mean quintessence, remind me of Exalted. The prelude fiction, we get a demon eye view of a demon by the name of Athaniel that has been summoned back and slowly co-ops an abbey into angel worship. It mentions that the land is parched and the people wait for miracles that in the dark ages, we know that kind of the mythic age has ended. And that is kind of our starting point. And we see the slow growth of this angel cult that is actually a demon cult and the core members on the academic and faith side kind of growing in their faith towards this demon and how the demon responds until the demon ultimately does a demony thing in the form of just kind of sacrificing one of its pawns. This for me is also the first formal mention or introduction of the Inquisition or possibly the Shadow Inquisition, kind of the precursor to Hunter the Reckoning. And the Inquisition guy comes in and goes, did you see God? And she's like, well, now that you mention it, not so much. And then she's like, 
Okay, get the torches. And it's a real, it's, it's a real short fuse that gets lit on that one. I'm like, mm, they're not messing around. I thought it moved. I thought it was well-written. I love mage. Sometimes it is just nice to spend time in someone else's house and see how they do things. Mage has a certain style to it. And if nothing else, it is nice to visit another way of doing anything. Did you have any thoughts on the prelude fiction, Adam? I am used to looking at the idea of true faith in World of Darkness games and you know how it, how it can be used to um, oftentimes for mortals to fight enemies and of course <clears throat> there are a number of mage books where it says hey well, maybe mages could have true faith too. This uh, prelude fiction gave a, a real different view of the true faith of humans and how it might be used or how it might be manipulated or or you know power something and so it it, it was just a, a very different way of looking at that element of the world of darkness so that that had me really uh, wondering when I was reading through this but other than that I'm ready for the intro the introduction and again since this is not a mage book it actually has meaty content in the introduction and it basically tells that demons exist and feast upon mortal belief they are fallen angels and they made the world and they attempt to subvert all religion and belief and direct that worship towards them it also mentions that some may even try and repent. They are stuck in some sort of abyss without form, but they are also indestructible until called up by mortals. It mentions that the teachings of the Dark Ages church is right-ish with some misunderstandings kind of baked in, and that very few of them will ever get to reach redemption. It breaks down kind of the three basic types of non-demon characters we're going to run into. The demonologist who studies demons and often jump to diabolists who seek to summon and control them. And finally, thralls, those who serve the demon directly as part of a specific pact, but rarely have prior knowledge of what a demon is. So... Questions of redemption for me, especially in World of Darkness games, are often kind of thin on the ground in terms of recommended story and mechanics. So one of the things I'm going to keep an eye out for is, does it do that? Uh, another kind of consideration it's going to do is, does it explain how they fit into the belief structures of the Dark Ages, both in terms of cosmology as well as their co-optation. So that to me is going to be the two things I kind of read for. A special third one is this book is listed as kind of dealing with all of the Dark Ages lines. So I'm going to keep an eye out for uh, any mage-specific stuff. And that was the introduction. Any thoughts on the intro? The intro seems seems to say to me that it takes its lead from Demon the Fallen game for World of Darkness, and that that was built around Christian theology. Which I'm wondering how how well does that mesh with Mage Ascension because its approach to theology is is much more more open and mysterious, and so that's that's a dynamic that I am going to pay attention to in this book. Also, the quote: "The Fallen make difficult and often repugnant protagonists, so storytellers may find more use for this book in creating antagonists." End quote. Yes, exactly th that right there. That that's what I'm looking at. <laughs> But on to chapter one. Chapter one is entitled Powers and Principalities, which is a joke about the hierarchy of the angels, if you know those in some faiths. The angels were beings that were tasked with making creation, and then they were removed from creation for rebelling against God. They hate hell more than mortals could ever know, which is the place to which they were banished when God's like, nope, you're gone. 
when they possess a human, they quickly burn them out, but they can send a portion safely into the mortal realm, which isn't very satisfying. And it also mentions that they're pretty jazzed that Constantinople was sacked. I don't know that we ever really get a good explanation of why they're like, Constantinople, woo! But they bring it up, they bring it up a bunch of times. We get a walkthrough of the history of kind of angel kind when God tasked the angels to make the world. And they do so by creating the laws of physics and everything beneath it. Humanity is then created by God, containing a divine spark beyond what angels can manage outside of blasphemous texts. We get an aside on blasphemous texts that exist that explain the demonic nature of Mithras or how when Jesus was in the desert, he was actually taught magic by Satan. Returning back, angels become jealous as they don't receive any divine attention. Lucifer gets back at God by planting doubt in humanity. Once that is done, Adam and Eve are expelled and quickly have children to deal with the now harsh world, and they give worship to demons who, in exchange, give them kind of knowledge and understanding to survive the harsh world. God withdraws from direct intervention, for to do so would possibly destroy creation. Michael is sent to fight the third of angels that have kind of fallen. The war between the fallen and the unfallen angels was entirely bloodless until Cain, that clever devil, invents murder. This discovery allows demons to learn that they can harvest faith more directly through human suffering and torture. Humans also learn that maybe worshiping demons isn't good, and they pull away and deprive demons of power. Sometime after that, the fallen host is struck from creation and banished to the abyss in a kind of formless void. For whatever reason, Lucifer was imprisoned separately, but is now back out into the world and has kind of slipped the whole abyssal phase. He saw that humanity was again at a stage where he could direct their actions towards the benefit, as it were, of demon kind. He brought back five of his archdukes from hell, and it didn't really go as planned as they had gone quite insane and quickly turned on Lucifer. Humans over this time had unleashed hundreds of demons, and God knows that calling upon the divine host to fight them again could destroy creation, so God creates a secret weapon known as Judaism. Moses and Solomon are both entrusted to fight the archdukes. Moses kills Baal in the form of the golden calf, and Solomon creates the Ark of the Covenant, which holds demons and is ultimately dropped into the Dead Sea. That's an interesting take on the whole, like, you know, it's in this box, the divine presence. You know what's actually in there? Demons. That's a that's a choice. Anyway, Jerusalem is assailed repeatedly by demonic army, armies, but stays. Meanwhile, in Greece, demons co-op the entirety of the Greek pantheon with as Asmodeus and uh, Abaddon gaining power in Rome and eventually taking over Greece. They engineer the collapse of the Republic and the rise of the Empire. Constantine was initially supported by Asmodeus until God spoke to him saying that he would only back the just. And Constantine took the hand and was like, maybe we're Christians now? And God's like, good choice. Good choice there, Constantine. The demons then turn on each other. As the Dark Ages fell in Europe, their normal tactics of fear is failing and they are recognized as being demons. Belial, meanwhile, moves to the Holy Land to to try and bring war between the Abrahamic faiths. And then Lucifer returns to the scene in 1204, and people aren't quite sure what Lucifer's been up to. We get information on the nature of demons. They are pure spirit, except when they materialize and become souls in perfected vessels. They are beautiful and terrible. Most of their wars, though, were fought in creation, and creation still bears their scars. 
boy, howdy, did I want information on what the scars of that war looked like. While starting as divine, time in hell and the need to change who they are to survive it has made them beings of negation and evil. They, like everything else, has a true name that contains elements like feelings and tones and is a bit more complicated than a normal true name. Instead, when they talk to mortals, they use what is referred to as a celestial name. They generally have honorifics and titles in addition to that that they can also be summoned and addressed by. For some reason, mortals have the ability to pull demons out from the abyss and bind or engage with them. And one of the theories listed is since humanity has divine spark, they are able to sidestep the walls of the abyss. Even once they are out, a kind of spiritual gravity pulls demons back, which is why they either need a vessel in the form of a object, place, or person. Their power comes from reflecting mortals' divine grace back on creation, that they take the faith of mortals, they harness it through their understanding of creation, and they use that to do stuff. When harnessing that faith, the more of a trial that the believer has gone through, the more potent their faith is. Their powers, though, at this point, can only really wound creation as opposed to creating anything novel and wondrous. Demons have a very deep desire for power, and their time in the abyss has only strengthened that, where they were tormenting each other, and that was kind of the only thing they could do. Their closest experience to pleasure is inflicting suffering, which tends to result in a lack of self-control. We get the alternative ideas that demons are both intensely patient and intensely short-term in terms of their thinking. And the line that they use to describe this is, a, a demon can no more decide to ignore his lust for atrocity than a mortal can decide not to grow old. Pretty good writing. We get some information on the different forms that they can take, that they can go into a reliquary, which is a some sort of object that is created for the purpose. The vessel will follow their affinity, so a demon of flame must be housed in something tied to flame. Slowly, the object gains resonance from the way the worshippers treat it. Their ritual use and sacrifice gives it meaning, and such acts direct faith into the object feeding the demon. Destruction of a reliquary would cause a demon to return to hell rather than destroying it, meaning they are both well-guarded, and since it is infused with the spirit of the demon, quite resilient to mechanical harm. A demon in a reliquary does have senses knowing what is happening around them and is able to communicate with their thralls. Alternatively, a demon can possess someone, hop into a mortal for a time, but doing so requires great preparation and can only be done with the willing, except in extremely difficult circumstances. The control is instant and total, and the demon gains full control of the host and their memories. The demon also has the ability to kind of sever off a port of themselves and to project that into a person. And for a brief moment, they are a demon-human hybrid, and the demon has full view of the horror that they are. The final thing that's kind of brought up is earthbinding, which is in where they are bound to a place. They are immobile, whereas a reliquary would take a group to destroy a demon inhabiting a forest or a mountain would require an army to destroy. This also results in the demon trying to make that area kind of the center of activity for everything they do, because otherwise they can't really move. The big example of this we get is uh, Kupala in the Carpathian Mountains, and then there's tie-in with the Zemisi, if one cares for that. I this immediately made me think of a demon possessing an army so that they could ignite a very large quantity of gunpowder in a particular area because like the demon had an itch on its back or something like that. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, demons have powers called arcana, which represent their ability to understand and influence creation. Specific demons will generally have one area of expertise and a few secondary ones. Uh, additionally, they have some sort of apocalyptic form, which shows kind of their true splendor 
to some extent. It takes a lot of power to manifest, and it is unambiguous what they are in that state. So generally, this is only done in great duress. So they mentioned briefly that of the original 666 demons that were allowed into creation, only a few persist. Most have been destroyed or eaten. One of the few ways to truly destroy a demon is to have another demon consume it. Because of their immortality and their hatred of the abyss, they tend to be very slow. They tend to be very paranoid, except, as I mentioned, in that way in which they are excessive and gluttonous and ravenous, which seems like a kind of hard thing to balance. Each demon has a preferred type of deadly sin that it is tied to, and they are listed as avarice or excessive greed, envy that wants to destroy things they lack, gluttony, which is the desire to consume, lust, which is to dive into physical sensation. Page 42, we get our first titty alert, so be warned. We also have pride, who want to see themselves above all other things, sloth, which is a need for simplicity and the simplest way to get things, which often seems to deal with a lot of assassination. And finally, wrath, which is uh, a desire for carnage and destruction. So we also get some information on who their enemies are. And one of the big ones is other demons. They really don't cooperate with each other. They compete with each other for faith, the resource that mortals have the ability to develop. And their time in the abyss has made it so that it is nearly impossible for them to kind of work with others of their kind, except in rare circumstances. They are also enemies of God and angels, but haven't seen any of those in a while. They also see the Abrahamic faiths as entities, which seek to hold fragments of the truth to the point where demons believe that these faiths were directly inspired by God and created to destroy demons. And I kind of like the idea of Moses Demon Hunter as a game idea, if that were not a core figure of another face. So like as a fan of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, I'll certainly take that. They also have a hatred of other religions that can steal their faith. And the Garu. Yep. (laughs) Because they're like, yep, and werewolves. And that had a very big feeling of, ah, shit, we said this would cover all game lines. How do we get the... uh, How do we get the rage puppies involved? But regardless, they did it. And that brings us to the end of a reasonably lengthy chapter one. I did a lot of talking. What did you think about chapter one, Adam? There were a number of things in here that had me scratching my head. Uh, There was a sidebar called Black Gospels where it says, Now chorister characters who follow Mithraism may or may not be demon worshippers. Storytellers call. It's like, okay, it's an interesting choice to say the least. I like keeping demons really mysterious as they have been in, in previous mage books. In fact, there are probably multiple kinds of demons or or things that are easily identified as demons anyways if they don't call themselves that. And uh, I, I like giving the storyteller a lot of you know, a free hand in deciding you know, which ones are demons and where they come from and how they actually operate. And this chapter really, really ties it down to a specific set of rules and lore. And so as a mage fan, that is kind of difficult for me. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm really going to run with that. Let's see, there's a section called Darkness Grows, starts on page 21. Uh, previous mage books looked down on church doctrine that gods of other religions are demons in disguise. And it's like, okay, I, I get that. Yeah, that does sound pretty bad. And this chapter kind of backs that up, says, yeah, some of those pagan gods are demons in disguise. It's like, okay, it makes sense with the the, the lore of, of this group of supernaturals that they're describing in this book, yet at the same time, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. It, it, it seems like the game developers are sort of you know, they're, they're pushing one idea and then they turn around and push the opposite and say, isn't that, isn't that cool? It's like, I'm not 
so sure that's cool. Something to, to think about, certainly. Page 23, it, it seems to say that some faiths are, some real world religions are really close to the truth while others really aren't. And so, I, yeah, it's hard for me when an RPG book looks at an RPG world and says, yeah, this religion's got it and this one doesn't. So I don't think that's really what they were trying to do here, but boy, does it look that way. And of course, as, as Terry mentioned, I also have in my notes saying the Ark of the Com- Covenant of the Jewish faith is used as a trap box for demons is, I, I don't know, if a person wanted to offend Jewish people, this is a great way to do it. I don't think they were trying to. I don't, I really don't think they were trying to, but gosh darn it, it you know, might be interpreted that way by some people. Masks of Divinity Sidebar tries to put the lid back on Pandora's box. And what I mean by that is, hey, we're not saying that pagan gods are demons in disguise. If you have player characters that are following a certain uh, pagan god you know, in the game, then that, they're, they're totally not demon worshippers. And so it's like, okay, I get what you're saying here. And yeah, you, you shouldn't say to a player, surprise, you're worshiping demons. Don't! You know, that, that would totally suck in your game sessions. But, you know, at the same time, it's like in, in the old Greek myth, they couldn't really get the lid back on Pandora's <laughs> box because, you know, it just, just didn't really work that way, even though it would have been nice. And that's kind of my thinking here. It's like you, you tell us, hey, a lot of those pagan gods are demons in disguise, but, but you know, don't go too far with this. So it's like, okay, I won't go too far with this. But, you know, now I've, I've got this extra dynamic I've got to think about as a storyteller. On page 26, there's a sidebar that states, demons do not control human history. But after reading this chapter... Boy, it looks like they do. <laughs> so. Demons don't control human history. They ended the Roman Republic, but they don't control human history. Yeah, they were all over the, over the Greek pantheon, but it's not like they influenced things. Well, maybe a little. <laughs> I, I'm not saying the developers did a bad job, but it's just there were a couple of points in here where it's like, okay, you, you've kind of opened up some issues that now storytellers and players are going to have to sort out that they didn't before. And so some, something to think about, something to, to take note of as we're passing through the chapter. But uh on to chapter two. Yeah, I, it would be tough for me to call it tidy. <laughs> yeah. Chapter two is entitled Slaves Enthroned and goes over, it starts out with the three types of cults that they form. The first are theistic cults where they try and insert themselves into some existing faith hierarchy where they say, ah, yes, I am an embodiment of Odin or something like that, or I am Hecate. And it lists that this is useful. It runs into a problem if the demon stops acting in accordance with whatever figure they are. And one of the things that got me about this section is it repeatedly says the problem with this is there's a very limited degree to which they can spread. Like they can't go beyond the size of the original cult, which to me makes no sense. Like... If you're a powerful demon and you say that you're Morrigan and people are like, you know who really delivers the goods? Morrigan. That's going to get real popular. Partially religion spread through belief and conquest, but also because in some way to the believers, they deliver the goods. Not necessarily in the material sense of of miracles and such, but I can't imagine that hurts. You're like, no, no, no. Our God manifests and literally led us in battle and we crushed this other village. I feel like that religion is going to get a little bit more popular in the area. Again, not not a history major, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, good point. Yeah, the, the second example they give are pseudo-angelic cults. And these are attempts to co-opt Abrahamic belief structures, mostly European Christian ones, because kind of the idea of angel devotion is not uncommon. And angels are a pretty common and viewed as somewhat friendly compared to the remoteness that they may have in other Abrahamic faiths. The problem with this, again, is as we learn in the intro text, the Inquisition is all over that stuff. But it also very much talks about the need to fulfill faith in some way, that in the Dark Ages, the world is, in a lot of ways, kind of terrible, and that anything that can stoke belief and faith is going to be quickly glommed onto. And I, I kind of like this as an idea. And throughout the book, it talks about what are the miracles that a demon can perform. And it's like, oh yeah, this is an era before medicine <laughs> in any feasible way. So a demon that's able to do the simplest of miracles to save a young person or to stave off death or starvation from someone is probably in a position to get a lot out of, out of commoners and such. The third type we get are demonic cults where they're like, yo, I'm a demon. You want to do some demon stuff? And people are like, may as well. My pappy was a demon worshiper. It suggests that these are cultivated in communities, that it tends to be a familial thing along generations, which I thought was kind of weird. Be like, my pappy worshiped a demon. My pappy's pappy worshiped a demon. And I'll be darned if I go with your pagan god now. And it's like, oh, okay, that's a way to do it, which kind of suggests that there are areas that are like real big into demons. And I would have liked more information on those, even if it were like fictional locations and such, I can see why they wouldn't want to go like, you know who's really big on obvious demon worship? The French um, <laughs> or something like that. Uh, the, the closest we ever really get to that, I guess, would be in Sorcerer's Crusade where it's like Tezgul the Insane. You know what he was? Insane. You know what he had a lot of? Demons. And I thought that was subtle until we actually got the character sheet for him in Sorcerer's Crusade. I'm like, this guy has a stamina 12. I can see that. He can be insane for a really long time and does not skip leg day. So I would have liked a little bit more information on that. <laughs> we also get information on kind of the different angles that people take. We get a little bit more information about diabolists and demon researchers. And they're like, theirs is truly the most dangerous one. I'm like, I don't know. The people who've already sworn themselves are damned. Like their, their version of danger seems to be like it could turn out bad and things that you know will turn out bad are not actually dangerous because you've already been forsworn. And it goes over kind of how that works. We also get the basic relationships one can have with a demon. One is flat out bartering where you say, I'm going to do this. You would do that. It is semi-formal. There is often a structure, a formality to it. And the demon is very interested in thinking that the pact is somehow, or pardon me, I shouldn't use the term pact, that the agreement is bartering. Another thing they can do is form a pact, which is much more formal that if one party breaks it, something bad will happen. They mention that when dealing with the learned who have the ability to draw up appropriate pacts and such by invoking the essence of the demon, this can be very, very dangerous for them. And the final method is enthrallment, where a portion of the demon is is willingly let into a mortal they gain total control they have the ability to gain investments and other powers like arcana and so on but in exchange uh, you suffer true taint as a mortal you kind of see the world briefly through the demon's eyes in terms of that feeling of denying god but also at the same time you are awaken to the supernatural. So you gain an attribute known as torment as well as resolve. We'll go into what that is a little bit more later. As it goes through these, we get more information on Diabolus and other organizations within the world of darkness who deal with demons. And when I think organizations, I think Adam. 
Adam, who are these groups that deal with demons? <laughs> Well, at the end of chapter two, we are given two diabolist factions. Uh, diabolists here are defined as people who command demons or barter with them as equals. The circle of red are mages and, not surprisingly, may be the most successful and best organized group of non-vampire diabolists. A merchant guild gives them financial support, enabling them to more easily travel and obtain rare books. A carefully regimented class system helps the circle of red operate efficiently while maintaining secrecy. There are three classes. The largest is the merchants who are mostly non-mages, or entirely non-mages. They act as messengers and servants to the mages and provide funds. The next class is the facilitators, who are largely spies and hired killers. They are security and muscle for the Circle of Red. They also kidnap victims. The final class is the mages, called Venefici. They are the ones actually dealing with demons and leading the Circle of Red to commit unspeakable crimes. The Venefici believe their knowledge places them outside God's order, and thus notions of good and evil cannot be applied to them. They live according to carefully regimented rules that govern their sins and are known for being distant and cold even to fellow members. This section tells us they are operating in Bavaria, but it isn't clear if this is the only place they are active. This chapter suggests using them as villains for demon player characters or as player characters that oppose demons. I'm going to wander way off track and suggest using them as villains for mage player characters. Are you crazy, right? Yeah. Our second Diabolist group is the... I, I don't know French. I'm going to say voleurs d'enfer. Um, I could be off on that. Uh, which means thieves of hell. They operate in the Anjou region of France. They are not mages but criminals who seized a set of demonology books in a raid. Experimentation left two survivors who recruited thieves and similar criminals to form the current group. The voleurs d'enfer mostly offer information and worshippers to different demons in exchange for information they use for crimes against ordinary people. This group seems perfect to use as villains that oppose the Six Fellowships, but we are given three story ideas for using them as player characters or opponents for thralls of demons. In a 150-page book, I would like to see more Diabolist groups than this, but at least we get two. I uh, just wanted to give my thoughts on the rest of chapter two. There was uh, one section where Terry mentioned it, where it states that when a demon impersonates a pagan god, it cannot drift away from the original beliefs of that religion or cult because then they get found out. And I kind of see that as not being that simple because, uh, for example, you know, just, just picking a pagan god at random uh, from Dark Ages region, uh, say say Thor, okay? Not that that's a prime sp uh, target, but if a demon is going to impersonate Thor, then yeah, they can't say uh, to their believers, yeah, Thor was really a woman. It's like, yeah, that's just, that's just not going to work. But on the other hand, the demon is going to want to cause the followers to sin and drift away from the real religion because then it's more useful to the demon. So in the Norse mythology, Odin accepted human sacrifice, Thor didn't. So if some demon is impersonating Thor, I think one of the things it's really going to want to do is say to its followers, oh, you, you got it wrong. See, I really, I really do take human sacrifice. I mean, Odin's doing it. Uh, you know, Freya does it. Yeah, I'll bet you didn't know that. Well, I do it too. So get out there and do some unspeakable crimes. I, I think that's kind of what a demon would want to do. <laughs> Sorry, I just need to dwell on the line, get out there and do some unspeakable tr crimes, which is said in the same attitude of somebody who is a little league coach now get out there and win i that's okay yeah that's the demon game i need uh, 
<laughs> yeah, those divas, they, they, they really, they're sneaky. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, generally speaking, when I look at this chapter, I got the impression that the authors took longer than was required to get their point across. I, I think this chapter could have been tightened up in terms of writing. I, I think if they had reduced the word count, it, it probably could have helped it to get its point across more effectively to readers and freed up some, some word count for some other subjects. But I'm ready to look at chapter three. Yeah, it, chapter two is kind of uh, interesting. Like, one of the things it never answered for me is why demons go to sleep. Like, it's brought up in several cases that they slumber. I mean, it's brought up in a couple cases that they can kind of be starved of faith. But I never really got a good answer to the question of, like, why wouldn't you always be around kind of cultivating things? Most people also don't realize that in a example of time two, Adam and I are actually depicted on page 70. It shows someone in kind of a stupor over a very thick book. I think this is Adam and I having read M20 in two weeks. So that's a, that's yeah. a neat little <laughs> It also mentions that demons have a very strong interest in having their name known throughout creation. So I really like the idea of there being an NWO group in modern times that just goes around and just kind of tries to wipe out all of these things. It also mentions that it's tied to the church because the clergy is tightly bound up with money and resources. And that's where they go. And one of the things it mentions is like, you're a demon, you're just back from hell, and you're poor. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's pretty World of Darkness right there. <laughs> that's the most <laughs> single thing. <laughs> You've returned, and you don't have any money on you. Amen to Adam's statement of chapter two dragged. It was very repetitive. Like uh, one of the things about these first two chapters is there's a really good nut of an idea. I just feel like in a lot of places it could have used a, a second pass to kind of tighten up and to free up some space for, as Adam mentioned, more more groups. We don't get a single statted character sheet in this book. And I think it really could have helped with that, especially when you're introducing an entire thing. But yeah, chapter three, the host of hell, character creation for mortal and demons. And this chapter tries to do a lot. It is trying to give you rules to create a mortal, a diabolist, a thrall, a demon, and like a full power demon all at the same time. And it tries really hard. It, re it gets the A for effort, but it gets the the B minus for execution. We get some some guiding things. Mortals attributes six four three. Demons are seven five three. Mortals get eleven seven four for abilities. Demons get thirteen nine five. The demons also get a willpower of five, which is I'm like okay, so demons and mages got it. We get backgrounds. They use these things verdes virtues. I don't know what it is. I think it's pronounced virtue. But as a mage player, I've never had to see this term before. And suddenly it's like, oh yeah, you have consciousness and self control and courage and stuff like that. I'm like, lame, I have a retay. I don't need any of your values. <laughs> <laughs> we also are introduced to resolve, which is your ability to kind of harness your knowledge of kind of the divine nature of the world. It's like, it's like willpower, but completely different, except in the way where we describe it. And it's like willpower. And you're like, mm, thanks book. We also get torment, which is like humanity, but backwards, which is the degree to which you have been denied the love of God kind of eat you up on the inside. And it's kind of like angst in Wraith where you accumulate temporary points. And if you get 10 temporary points, it turns into a permanent point and there's ways for it to go up and down. But once you have a torment, you also have to pick a vice. So you also get taints. There's so many taints, just pages and pages of taints. If you're a thrall, you can also get packed, but then you need to pick your arcana and demons only get 15 bonus points, but mortals get 21. 
So this chapter is really trying to do a lot. One of the ideas is that your degree of corruption allows you to make more space for powers and that you can take on pacts to give yourself more ability to, again, take on additional arcana. And likewise, as your torment rives, rises, you also have the ability to take on more stuff. It, it kind of makes sense, but it's very crunchy in terms of how many points of this and that you can take. And sometimes it's ambiguous what resource you're spending. So a lot of these are kind of XP driven where it's like, okay, am I spending XP or resolve to get this? And does it stay under the sum of 10 times my permanent torment plus my temporary torment plus my taints plus my pacts? We get new abilities, awareness, demonology, and torture. And I'm like, okay, no, that fits in this book. We also get backgrounds, which is including cult, which is like herd. So I like the fact that a demonic mage could have the background cult and the background cult. It has this neat little rule, though, that if your torment gets too high, the power of your cult isn't as powerful. So if it goes above six, you treat your cult as it is one lower. And in this case, cult is kind of the group of people that feeds you faith to power, to give you resolve to power your stuff, assuming that your powers are less than 10 times your permanent torment, plus your temporary torment, plus your tax, plus your pain. So the range of cult is also not contiguous. So one dot is three to five and two is 10 to 15. Each one roughly increases as a factor of three, which back of the envelope, this means that Western European God has a cult rating of roughly 16. So thank you. Eminence is how well other demons know you. And this has the, the baller line at Eminence 5 of, in the beginning there was the word and you were among the next syllables pronounced by him. And I'm like... Well, that's cool. Sometimes we get really good five dot descriptors and in other car parts, we don't like an M20 where five dots of drive is listed as James Bond. And you're like, oh, torment goes up and down based on a hierarchy of sins that if you do something worse than your current torment rating, you have the ability to roll to resist accumulating torment. But sometimes you want to increase your torment. That way you can have more powers. You can buy off torment by paying XP, but if you become too virtuous, you start losing arcanas and powers. And this is kind of the first hint we have of that redemption arc that can occur. We get new merits and flaws. We get the merit unbound, your master is gone or destroyed. We get another one that says, your demon actually kind of likes you. Uh, penitent, which means that you have the ability to reduce your torment more so than other people, and it is easier for you to resist. One of the things that repeatedly pops up in this game is the redemption arc requires an immense spend of experience points. And this kind of bothers me because later it says, if you really want to redeem yourself at some point, you're going to have to get the penitent merit. And I don't think we get a way to gain a new merit. That would have to be a storyteller fiat kind of thing. But also at the same time, like if that's what your game's going to be about, that's what your game's going to be about. It's like having an experience point for having a void ship. Like if you have a void ship, it's now a game about having a void ship. This has been Terry's discussion on backgrounds as gateways to play. We get more information on the taint, torment, pact, resolve, worship economy, which if I were actually going to play this, I would have to read the section two or three more times to make sure that everything was really buttoned up. Like a one-page summary of it would have been would have been really useful. We get information and systems on summoning and binding demons where you first need to research the target and you need to get success equal to their torment plus the resolve rolling weekly, which gets easier as you have more information or their true name. And one of the recurring themes in here I get is... 
Wow. Order Hermes can probably summon and boss around demons like effing champions. Once summoned, you have a day where the demon is going to do your bidding, but then a battle of wits ensues between the demon's willpower and your wits plus a cult. Once again, Order Hermes are just going to be able to boss these guys around all day, and I kind of and I kind of love that. I don't know if that was the intention, but that's what I what I got. Then the meat of what it is to be a demon systematically comes in the Arcana section, where we get all of the innate arcana, which is, this is how you build your apocalyptic form. This is how you get your bonus for your intimidating role, that it is a visage both terrible and angelic, that uh, all of the system for consuming another demon is in the devour soul section of the innate arcana section of the character creation chapter. So one of the things that happens system-wise is a lot of these things are in weird places. I really feel as if the core systems for being a demon should have been kind of cordoned off separately because to have that <laughs> and also you have claws within a page of each other was a little bit jarring. Those are the innate arcana. We then get the learned arcana or what I like to call shitty spheres. We get the arcana of form, which is physical abilities, your weapons, your tentacles, your ability to spread disease, your arcana of glory, which let you raise stats, the arcana of mind and soul, which let you control mind and soul and let you briefly look impossibly glorious or exist in a corpse or command a ghost or convince someone that they should really buy a timeshare. The arcana of fate and portals where they're just like, ah, crap, we have to put these things in here. What do we call it? What if correspondence and entropy were the same bad sphere? You can predict the random and you can blow open doors. The arcana of force and elements allows you to redirect fundamental forces and make illusions. Finally, we have taints, which are things that you can trade away to gain more points to make rooms for ability, ranging in terms of cost from kind of a jerk and you're bad at lying to you just don't have legs. I like that that's very specifically one of the options. No legs, four points. Finally, we get information on how to judge a pact where you have to set how extreme the thing you're going to do is, how often you have to do it, and the bad thing that happens if you don't. This threw me off because I think frequency is backwards, but in terms of its value, but... And that was that was chapter three. It's got a lot of... It's got a lot of demons, a lot of demon systems. It's, whew. Yeah, that was the biggest chapter in the book. And uh, that was, it was a big ask because as Terry said, it's it's how to make like three or four different types of characters at the same time. I was actually reading through the Arcana, uh, which is a big part of the chapter. And I was thinking, okay, what about those thralls, you know, NPC thralls? But a lot of the Arcana are uh, demons only. And so it's like... It'd be nice to like have a section where it's like, here's the arcana that, that only demons can have. And then after that, the bigger section, here's the arcana that thralls and demons can both have. It's like, it, that'd be sure be handy f- for me, actually. Not only if I'm using NPC thralls, but I mean, according to this book, you can run a game for player character thralls. And it's like, even for that character generation, you got to like really pick your way through pages and pages of arcana. And you got to look for the little asterisk next to this one and the little slash next to this one. That's like... Yeah, it would be nice to break things out or box things off or, or some something like that. Generally speaking, when it comes to using demons as NPC opponents, I think I'm okay with using spirit rules from Mage the Ascension or maybe Sorcerer's Crusade. I, I think I can get by pretty well with that. But let's see, there's a, a background called Rites, which does not work the same way as most backgrounds do, whereas two is more than one, for example. With Rites, every dot you have is an individual Right, and it's either for summoning or, or, or binding. So if like if you've got three dots, and it's like okay, what are those 
three rituals. So that that's going to take some getting used to for both players and storytellers. Page 107 has an arcana called Pattern Sense, and it's sort of like a uh, awareness, mystic sense radar that demons have, and it has an incredible range, especially for the accuracy that it offers. So, I mean, as as a storyteller, whether it's player characters or NPCs, if I've got demons in my game, this pattern sense arcana, I'm going to reduce the range on that because I think it can be game imbalancing, at least uh, from my understanding of it. When I look at all the arcana in this chapter, I would use it for thrall NPCs. It would probably be the main way that I would use this, possibly for demon NPCs. So, you know, from that approach, some of these I just need less detail because uh, a lot of them talk about how when you're using this power or about to use this power, it interacts with all of the you know traits on your character sheet that are only for demons and thralls. And it's like, look, if I've got NPCs, I, I may not you know want to worry about all the overhead. And so I would probably take a lot of these arcana and just say, yeah, do this or don't do this, but I'm not going to you know, factor it in, you know, run the numbers by the character sheet. I think the taints uh, towards the end of the chapter are pretty straightforward and useful for NPCs. They're easy to apply, easy to understand. You know what you get. When it comes to pacts, if I'm dealing with NPCs, then pacts are complica so complicated that I probably just wouldn't use them. It's like, look, it's an NPC. I'm, he's, he can do this and he can't do that, and let's let's run with it. As for player characters, there's, there's kind of like this way of working out how to get more points, and you gotta... I don't think it's really that open to being min-maxed, so that that's a point in its favor, but you know the complexity of it, yeah, if you're using player characters generated off of this chapter, there's there's a lot of numbers on the character sheet. There's a lot of statistics that interact with each other. And so it's going to take a while for a storyteller to really be ready to run this properly. As Terry said, reading this chapter two or three times, which is a pretty darn long chapter, it can be done, but it's a big ask. Well, let's take a look at chapter four. This is a storyteller chapter. It has four sections, dealing with torment, demons in the dark medieval, waking horrors, and notable infernalists. Let's start off by dealing with torment. Actually, of all the things I don't want to deal with, torment would be at the top of my list. And that fits because this section is for demon player characters. I don't allow demon player characters in my games for the same reason I don't allow Nefondi. Your character does what after a few beers? Not in my games. But rather than dismiss it completely, I'll share the basics. We get a discussion of the nature of the ritual of the sundered soul, where a piece of a demon's essence is placed in a mortal host. The result is a demon player character who has supernatural powers, but not too powerful for play. We learn there aren't many of these in 1230, but they have the capacity to work towards repentance. Uh, whether or not repentance is possible is for the storyteller to decide. If it is, demon players work their torment rating down to one by the penitent merit and then believe with all their might. Some ideas are offered for what accomplishing redemption look like. Uh, personally, I like the angels appearing out of nowhere and saying, we've been working all along, you slacker. Now pick up those <laughs> tools and get to work. We see rules for a demon's thrall achieving redemption. The section ends by noting most demons pursue damnation instead. The closer a demon gets to redemption, the more arcana they lose and the easier it is for enemies to kill them. Gaining power for self-defense inches them closer to damnation. So that's why there are so many demons that are so darn mean. Demons in the Dark Medieval is the next section, and it starts talking my language. How about demons as NPC villains for other games? In a vampire game, demons make interesting foils. They also prey on humans. They have knowledge to tempt vampires pursuing the different roads of the kindred. Demons cannot possess vampires as hosts. If they possess a ghoul, it becomes a regular human host for them, but they have little motivation as it would put them in conflict with the ghoul's master, and all ingested vampire blood raises their torment score. Vampires can become thralls to demons and add arcana to their discipline 
disciplines. The systems details for vampire thralls are beyond the scope of this podcast. Next is demons in Dark Ages mage games. Mages are better equipped than most to summon demons out of the abyss, but they are also better equipped to bind and command demons. This makes mages desirable tools and potential dangers to demons at the same time. Demons instructed humanity in the distant past, thus they believe they made pillar magic possible for mages. The mage fellowships do not have this lore in their teachings, so they have little motivation to believe this line from demons. The text suggests loosening up the backgrounds of demons so that instead of accepting the material presented in this book, demons are powerful spirits that were banished from earth long ago by unknown forces, perhaps good spirits, perhaps gods, or the mages of antiquity. Now the mages who know of demons are attracted to their knowledge of magic in ancient times, yet repelled by their dishonesty and desire to enthrall mages. Demons can possess mages as hosts, but it's very difficult. Mages add their foundation rating to their willpower when resisting possession. If the demon succeeds, it cannot use the host's magic at all. Mages who become thralls lose a dot of willpower and gain a dot of torment. They gain the character traits new to this book, like resolve, virtues, etc. They can gain arcana powers and recover resolve more easily than regular thralls. They can buy foundation and pillars with arcana. It becomes a complicated character sheet, plus the demon can boss the mage around. Players will probably see little to be gained from it, but infernal mages as NPCs could be interesting. I just wish the systems weren't so darn complicated. Thematically, demons go together well with Dark Ages Inquisitor. They are natural opponents and on the lookout for each other. Inquisitors can be possessed by demons, but it's very difficult. Inquisitors can become demon thralls, but then they're off the church's Christmas card list. Inquisitors can exercise demons from human hosts and reliquaries. Uh, much better than mages, actually. Werewolves think that all demon lore of the world's creation and angelic rebellion is false. They call demons banes and their thralls fomori. Werewolves hate demons even more than they hate well, everything that doesn't come from werewolf culture. Werewolves believe the worm's banes are pretending to be demons to attract the church's attention against communities the church would otherwise ignore. This section suggests an alternative. What if the demons have it right and the werewolves have it wrong? That that's totally impossible. What if the demons created werewolves or influenced their beginnings? Some interesting ideas to play with if you incorporate a lot of werewolves in your game. Demons can possess were-creatures. The kinfolk of were-creatures can be possessed, but their supernatural powers go dormant. Although few want to, were-creatures can become demon thralls. Black Spiral Dancers do it. We get systems details that I won't list all of them here. Demons can grant immunity to the delirium to their thralls which means thralls can be more effective opponents against were-creatures. However, I still think they're going to be shredded pretty quick. Dark Ages, Fae, and demons largely avoid each other. They don't understand each other and don't see any particular reasons to attack. Demons cannot possess the Fae. They can possess changelings, but it is more difficult. Changelings can become thralls and operate like normal humans, but it doesn't happen very often. Wraiths cannot be possessed or become thralls. Demons cannot gain anything from the faith of wraiths. It mentions a few demons associated with death rule over wraiths. A demon can attempt to push a possessing wraith out of a mortal. Thralls who die and become wraiths are not thralls anymore. Waking Horrors describes four demons that could be used in games. This book states spirits cannot be male or female, but often identify themselves as male or female. The four demons here are referred to as male. Uh, Belial, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is an archduke of the abyss and second in power to Satan. Belial is obsessed with locating and attempting to destroy Satan. He is a demon of pride and controls natural disasters, including storms, among other frightening powers. Belial resides in a small statue that is currently located beneath the streets of Jerusalem. This city is the one place he seeks new worshippers, as he believes it to be an excellent city to gather information. 
He operates numerous small cults, which usually cannot summon grand displays of power. These cults do not focus on recruiting new members. Most cult members are powerful individuals who make very useful thralls. One of the largest cults is called the Children of Myrden, who haunt the forests of Wales and Cornwall. Uh, these druids used to be members of the Old Faith Fellowship. They now commit a variety of atrocities, but focus on ley lines that stretch across the Earth's surface. They try to seize craze from mages and werewolves. Abaddon is another Archduke of the Abyss. He is a demon of sickness and pestilence. Unlike Belial, Abaddon is willing to work with other demons, although he doesn't trust them. I huh, wonder why. He installs wrath and strength in his thralls, who are granted immunity to, to disease, but enabled to spread it. After the fall of Rome, Abaddon fled that city for the wastes of what is today Norway. Several tribes of degenerate Vikings worshipped him as Loki. Christianity reduced his worshippers, but the Black Blood tribe still serves him there. This group of raiders moves across northern Europe, attacking villages and towns, savagely leaving plagues in their wake. The Tainted Saints is a group of lepers spread across Europe who worship Abaddon. Abaddon is now interested in vampires and the hidden empires they carve out for themselves. Early attempts to recruit them was unsuccessful, so he's trying to create thralls with blood that will entice vampires. Visago was summoned from the abyss by an insane Jainist cult in what is today India and housed in a large diamond. Pieces of that diamond were cut off and sent to distant places to tempt mortals. Those smaller diamonds extend Visago's senses and power over the gem's owners. Visago is a demon of envy and prefers subtle methods. Visago can see the future and control dreams and visions. He is served by the Saffron Eaters, who remain in India, as well as a number of secretive cults in Europe, who are led by an owner of a diamond that manipulates dreams. These cults use economic and political power. Hermetic mages have noticed the interference of these cults and wonder how to combat them. Visago wants his diamond reliquary transported from India to Europe, but is having a hard time planning the move. Ouroboros is a demon of gluttony and lust who appears as a grotesque toad-like figure. Housed in a sandstone statue, Ouroboros was in stasis for nearly 500 years. A church scholar got too curious 30 years ago and uncovered the statue, waking the demon. Ouroboros is a simple-minded demon given to his desires of excessive feeding. He commands toads, rats, flies, and other vermin. He controls poisons and awakens unnatural hungers in mortals. One cult called the Luciferians by outsiders serves Ouroboros in what is today Germany. This cult practices mass orgies and toad kissing. Listeners, please don't try this at home. The cult is attracting church attention and may be suppressed soon. Ouroboros is trying to attract church attention so he can spread his influence to church leaders even at the cost of his current cult. From the unpleasant topic of demons, we turn to the equally unpleasant topic of infernalists. Notable infernalists is the header, and personally I think all demon worshippers are noteworthy, but this section narrows it down to four. Brother Gratianus is a thrall mentioned in the prologue fiction. He is a member of the Franciscans and a talented painter who serves what he believes is the Angel of Storms. He depicts the angel in paintings that encourage people to worship. Gratianus has arcana that allow him to make his paintings become relics. He is currently busy recruiting cult members for the Angel of Storms. Abelard is a saint of the tainted saints who worship Abaddon. He was a prominent member of the nobility before he was blessed by Abaddon with leprosy and commanded to spread it. Actually, there never was an Abelard. His story is spread by members of the Tainted Saints who claim disease is a force that helps all men understand their equality. Many saints carry a piece of what they believe was Abelard's body. The next two infernalists keep low profiles. Etienne the Liar is the charismatic leader of the Voleurs de Enfer of France. His fellow members don't know he's enthralled to a demon named 
Erepturus. Etienne is in his 60s but appears to be in his 30s. He fears the book containing the true name of Erepturus will be discovered. If Erepturus were to return from the abyss, Etienne would be in a lot of trouble, to say the least. Brother Philangelus is a low-ranking member of the Red Order. While investigating a cult, his partner was killed. Philangelus took refuge in a remote monastery, but his order never sent aid. After a long wait, a cultist gave him a text with information on demons. The monk now wonders if he should use the text to bind demons or if the text conceals dangers. Terry, what did you think of chapter four? I had thoughts. So uh, this opens with the ritual of the Sundered Soul, which it's weird for me to have that in a storyteller section. I don't know about you, Adam, but I really think this book failed to indicate to me that the ritual of the Sundered Soul was risky and doesn't always turn out how you think. No, no, no. It was the exact opposite. The book has literally said that 1,000 times, I think. If you were to just open it to a random passage, you would either get a flowery description from chapter two or a reminder that the ritual of the Sundered Soul doesn't always go the way that you want it to be. And it's really important in that torment economy kind of thing, but also it doesn't answer the question of, okay, what if I just do this a couple of times? That makes me real close to being penitent. It's weird that if a mage sub, like promises themselves to a demon, suddenly they have virtues. And <laughs> I just like that, that it's like, we don't have morality, we have arete. Also, your permanent torment gets added as ones to your botch pool, which makes magic wildly dangerous in a certain way. We get the inquisitor right absolution of the damned which allows someone who willingly goes through it turn torment into damage which will likely kill them but the whole idea is you kind of cleanse yourself and then you go off to the green on making or whatever what happens in game i thought this had a wonderful sentence on what it's like to be a kinfolk the souls of werewolves blaze with spiritual power leaving no room for demons to enter or seize control Kinfolk lack this immunity. Kinfolk lack this immunity may be one of the most concise summaries of what it's like to be a kinfolk that we ever get for werewolf. Balliol has some big, big BDE, big demon energy in the form of going, no, I am bigger than Satan. Oh, okay. Good luck with that. I like the fact that Balliol is trying, has cultists that are trying to find Lucifer, which I think is a super fun story option. I think one of the most interesting aspects of demons is kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend storyline. And that's brought up in a couple places. Abaddon is a creature of wrath and wanton destruction, which is why he's willing to work with others. <laughs> I was thrown off in the line talking about the seer of scorn that it's like Visigo was called from hell by an insane Janus cult in Golconda. Line break, India. So for a brief moment, I'm like, oh man, crazy at ease vampire summons demon from hell. Look at, oh no, you're literally talking about the town in India for once. Huh. How about that? Yeah. It, when I was younger, I went to the Fort of Golconda in India and I was like, you know, playing mage like uh, a month before I got there. And I was like, whoa, you can find Golconda here. Oh wait, no, it's quite, it's quite just literally. a military fort. Yeah. <laughs> Diamonds around the world spent spread envy, which is kind of what diamonds do anyway. This immediately made me feel like it would be a good patron for the decadenti in in kind of M20. St. Abelard and the Tainted Saints is a, a metal band, if I were into, that I would probably <laughs> listen to. I like that they promise equality, and that's the bad thing that they do. <laughs> so the thing I ran into with this is... We get the idea that demons that are not at full torment have limited power and are just back from hell. And it mentions that for every doubling of time that they are back, they get 10 more points to kind of play with until you get maximum torment and resolve. But like, I don't, 
I, I need a little bit more system support for this. Like, what does it mean for Abaddon to try and convince one of my characters to do something? I really don't feel like I have systems to have that be in the game directly. And if I'm playing mages that are somewhat powerful, it's not unreasonable that an Earthbound could take interest in them. I can I can deal with their, their schlubs and their cultists and so on. But a little bit more for when the demon chooses to act directly, I think would be helpful. I thought the characters were interesting. I thought the demons were interesting. I wanted more of it. And if we could have hacked out a little bit of chapter two to make room for it, that would have been that would have been great. So those are my shots on chapter four. Adam, what's in the appendix? The appendix covers two groups of diabolists who seek to gain power over demons instead of serve them. The Baali is a bloodline of vampires. Large established groups among vampires are called clans. Uh, smaller, less influential groups are called bloodlines. The Baali are a bad bunch by everyone's standards. The most evil and depraved vampires look at the Baali and say, yeah, I don't want any of that. That's why vampire society tries to remove any Baali that move into their city. Demons who discover Baali operating in their territory either pass the information to other vampires or move against them directly. Most believe the Baali are a remnant of an ancient demon cult that converted their members to vampires. They have associated with evil for so long they are vulnerable to the powers of true faith and take double damage from faith-based powers. In 1230, the Baali summon and bind demons to increase their power. They have a discipline called Daimoinen. Uh, we see what it can do from levels 1 to 9. Uh, it involves influence over demons and gaining their powers at higher levels. The level 9 power lets you end the world. If that's something you need to do, please give us a warning first. A uh, sidebar... Uh, gives three ideas for stories where the Baali are NPC villains. The second group is the mages of the Circle of Red. These mages uh, also call themselves the Venificti, which Google translates as uh, poisoned or poisoned ones. Ooh. It states they are the antithesis of the messianic voices, but we are not told if either group is aware of the other. They believe God is beyond good and evil, and their knowledge places them beyond it too. The aura of this group is self-control, which gives others an uncomfortable sense of confinement and even claustrophobia. Phobia. Their foundation is titled Sin and involves the denial of obligations to right and wrong. By alternating calculated indulgence and abstention from sin, these mages seek firm self-control and an exit from the morality of commoners. We get four new pillars called Abomination, Subversion, Diabolism, and Malediction. They don't sound like good things, but I'm <laughs> subject to morality, so I'm not qualified to evaluate them. Abomination allows powers similar to the matter, life, and mind spheres, uh, quite powerful, and some of the material is vague. For for example, level two allows the alteration of matter, but only the physical appearance or makeup. That's open to interpretation. Subversion allows mastery of languages and protection from infernal texts. At level four, it allows control over the minds of others. Diabolism is summoning and warding against demons. It doesn't mention binding, but I think warding covers that. Malediction covers lying, detecting lies, and mystic stealth, including the creation of false auras. Next, we get four spells called rotes, because game terms don't matter. After reading over the details of their magic, they seem quite weak in direct conflict. These mages are going to do everything they can to have demons or servants fight for them. One of their pillars makes them great at stealth, so they will probably work hard to avoid direct fights with other mages. I'd like to take a few moments here to offer my thoughts on the circle of red presented in this book. I like the inclusion of this group of villains because it opens up opportunities to discuss ideas in our games like morality. These mages believe a different set of morals apply to them because of their learning. 
I would like to play out a scene where an NPC explains himself to the players. Do the players think he's right, or has he deluded himself? I'm reminded of the climax of The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. The protagonist confronts the villain at the end who makes the argument he is a wizard and his great learning has set him above the lowbrow morality of society. Therefore, everything he has done is justified and the hero should stop bothering him. The protagonist has to think on his feet and ask, am I really the hero? The text states that more than once a circle of red mages eliminate relationships with people outside their group. Does this mean associating with people who live under normal morality can pull a superior man back in? Is the superior learning somehow fragile? Interesting points to ponder. As for their magic, I think these pillars would be undesirable for player characters, but for NPC villains, I think they work fine. Some pillar-level des descriptions are vague, but an understanding of their basic theme and style makes me confident I can handle it as a storyteller. They will be very hard to find and eager to flee when confronted. Good villain material. Well, that's our appendix. Terry, what were your thoughts? We got a little bit of information on the Bali and Daemonian and expansions. And as you said, the nine point discipline, shatter the gate. You get to be Joss Whedon in Cabin in the Woods, and that's pretty cool. And it's like, yep, this is a plot device. Have fun with it. They list the Circle of Red as the antithesis to the messianic voices. And I'm like, oh, so they're nice. <laughs> and understanding of other people. <laughs> Got it. <Yeah. laughs> uh, we also find out that their foundation is sin. But you read it and you're like, is this, are these demon worshipers or are they Akashiana or cultist of ecstasy? <laughs> or they're like, no, by denying the self, we ascend. Oh yeah, that's really what I think of when I think of indulgent demon worshipers. And they're like, no, we must balance pleasure and pain to execute what we want. And like, oh, you sure this is still demon worshiper? This isn't Sahajia? Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I thought the pillars were neat. They were the the kind of vague level that would be useful for a storyteller to be like, eh, how do I want to dial this in? Okay, we, 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 we kind of got this thing, which I thought was interesting. They just have the pillar, which is the pillar of demon control. <laughs> and they have a second pillar, which also largely includes demon control this i think this is a real good tempt people with dark power thing where i could see a version of the circle of the red that as adam said do not think they are doing anything wrong we are mages this is just another thing for us to exert our will over so i could really see a character wanting to get the pillar of diabolism hey this this demon is ravaging it i don't have ends they're just far too powerful how are we going to get this thing out from our sacred grove or whatever hey here's the easy way to do it it's going to take some xp but you don't have to tarnish your soul or anything like that and i just thought that was that was real interesting or someone being kind of fascinated by that worldview as adam mentioned this is some real good mage stuff and they are not presented as just fanatical demon worshippers. The Bali, over the course of time, we get a bunch of different definitions from where they kind of come from. Is it something where they're trying to keep their Gnostic masters uh, asleep to prevent reality from being destroyed? But just good, good, clean fun in terms of antagonist sections. Uh, so, so, Adam, what did you think of the book overall? In the 90s, the higher supernatural truths behind gods and religions were left to storytellers. Books like this one kind of define it for everyone, and I, I, I'm i not sure I'm, I'm comfortable with that kind of locking down of, of concepts and ideas for, for the larger world of darkness. But the book does suggest, you know, in a couple of sections, especially chapter four, you know, you could change it up, you could you could mix it around. It's You could just say that this is stuff that demons say and other people don't believe. It's like, oh, okay, so you're not really locking it down, but it's just when you're reading most of the book, it kind of feels that way. This book shows restraint. There are no graphic depictions of dark deeds in the text like other mage books have done. I could mention a few. Um, I wish the illustrations had the same restraint. I mean, it's, it's one thing to see to be surrounded 
surrounded by tatas when you, as you flip the pages, but monsters with tatas, it's like, yeah, I, I, okay, that's that's a choice. Um, not sure it's one I love, but okay. This book repeatedly states it was designed for demons and infernalist player characters, and okay, not really my thing, but there are some, there is some good material in here. The rules for infernalist powers are complicated enough that I may just use infernalism from Sorcerer's Crusade, either that or pick through the Arcana and just use it like in isolation and how it interacts with the other. Uh, statistics on the character sheet just hand wave it because you know it's, it's only npcs uh, the circle of red mages and their pillars are the bright spot of this book for me i would mix their pillars in with the pillars of other fellowships and say that's what nefandi do it's like w when i was reading about nefandi in, in you know the previous two uh, mage dark ages books it's like oh they're out there they're bad what about their magic well, we don't know and it's like here it's like oh well i could take one or two of these pillars mix it in with some hermetic or batini pillars and and i've got this cool nefandi from the middle east i mean i could totally run with this that that is fun so yeah thank you book for that and i'm glad it's on my shelf so terry what were your general thoughts it was interesting seeing an entire type of supernatural created and outlined in a single book and i think they more or less did it i think it could have really sang with a little bit more review. I, again, Adam and I both mentioned that the, the systems were a little bit chunky and that the text was was kind of repetitive. I feel like we didn't get enough information about demons in the world at current. Like maybe Mage has just gotten me used to there being a section which goes country by country or region by region and tells me what people are up to in various places. I think there are broad swathes of the world where I'm just like, so what do demons do over here? As Adam mentioned, the cosmology is a bit too straightforward. Like take that Hinduism. <laughs> like, <laughs> it really doesn't play with anyone else that yeah. has a cosmogony of any sort. At least when Mage does that, like that happened in Infernalism Path of Screams, it kind of muddles it enough that it all fits. Like it mentions specifically that the Nefandi are terrified of the Buddha. Like as an aside, it's not just certain Abrahamic figures. But I mean, you, you got to put your coin down. So like the, the wager you're making with this game is, hey, in exchange for me picking up these bits of very concrete cosmology, I get this antagonist out. A, a paragraph or a page saying, hey, this is how we could make it a little bit fuzzier, I thought would be pretty good. But on, on the whole, this was fine. I think it does give an interesting way of having antagonists. Maybe this is my mage card showing, but I thought there would be more argument about the righteousness or the justness of maybe a demonic worldview, which we get in the Circle of Red section a little bit. For a game like this, I would have liked to have some example characters because this is so much stuff and it is so new. That would have been kind of great. The plot options were, were, were fine. This does give me a little bit more idea of of why the Dark Ages are so dark. It does certainly add some color to what we got in those first two books of Dark Ages Mage, which didn't have a huge amount of detail. And thinking about it now, I wonder the extent to which the authors really did presume that you had already read Dark Ages Vampire, which maybe did a better job of setting up what the world is like before you cracked Dark Ages Mage. I don't know about Adam, but I have never looked at Dark Ages Vampire either the contemporary one, the the uh, the V20 version, or the one for this period. So maybe there's a whole bunch of setting information there I'm kind of missing. I don't feel like we ever got an explainer of why the fall of Constantinople was so important. Maybe there's more that I, if I were more familiar with Vampire, I would know. But uh, otherwise, I thought this was 
an interesting book. It presaged what we get in Demon the Fallen a bit. I, I tend to like the Demon the Fallen interpretation a little bit more just because you have a lot more motivations. But then again, that is more explicitly a protagonist book. And whenever something goes from kind of NPC to protagonist, you kind of have to open up the play space a little bit more and give people more mixed motivations. But on the whole, if someone were to say, hey, we want to run a game with demons, I'd be like, okay, this isn't a bad place to start. So I think it is certainly a good place for ideas. I kind of wish we had a contemporary version of it that we're not Demon the Fallen. If someone ever wanted to do a 15 or 20 page thing, updating Devil's Do to work in the contemporary world, I think that would be pretty cool too. But uh, those, those were my thoughts. So was there any quote that stood out to you from this book? Oh boy, howdy were there. I think one of the ones they did was when they're like, ah, shit, we have to include the werewolves again. And they talk about the fighting between the two. And it says, thanks to these differences to methods and outlooks, Garu and demons clash only rarely. But when they do, the result is chaos and bloodshed on a scale to make God himself turn away in horror. I'm like, yeah. Because it's one of those things where it's like, you're not allowed to tear up the world and destroy things. That's my job. And suddenly he uh, he takes on Krynos form. So, <laughs> so like you look through the powers, you're like, oh man, this is a lot of overlap between the two. Are you sure the werewolves are the good guys? The other one I loved was we have Brother Philangelus, who I think just literally means like lover of angels. It has the line, I have read the passage in my Bible more times than I can count, but I never understood the worship of graven images before traveling through northern Wales. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yep, the Welsh noted pagan idol worshippers. Probably in this time that was a little more accurate, but anytime someone's like, you have never seen true depravity until you have seen the Welsh. <laughs> and those kind of stuck with me. I had a few other ones along. But uh, so, so, Adam, what are we reading next? Well, next we are going to do what may be our first twofer. We are going to look at two Dark Ages books that were written for the general Dark Ages settings, meaning uh, they have material for all the games in Dark Ages. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Rite of Princes and uh, Darkening Sky. Uh, Darkening Sky has, like, each chapter is a story for this kind of players. Like, here's the werewolf story. Here's the vampire story. We're going to look at the mage story out of that book. And for Rite of Princes, we're going to focus on the mage material. Rite of Princes is, he, here's how you set up your territory, your domain, your your headquarters for your, your players, uh, whether they're vampires, werewolves, mages, or I guess inquisitors. And so we're going to look at, okay, um, how can you, how can this help us uh, set up a chantry and the territory around it and make that interesting? And when it talks about vampires do this, and we're not going to focus on that so much when we go through the book. But uh, yeah, that's that's how we uh, approach our next one. And that, um, I believe, will be our final episode on uh, the Dark Ages setting. Yeah, the final Tomes of Magic. We may do accessory episodes talking with other people who know Dark Ages stuff, but Adam and I are like, no, we're good on core books for now. We're, we're good. <laughs> we M20 Sorcerer, we have not yet covered, and we will be bringing that to you. I'm not exactly certain at what point we will do that. I was, I'm was, i kind of tempted to wait until Lore of the Traditions comes out and then do you know episode one after another because it sort of helps us get our mind into the Mage 20 space a little more, more uh, firmly. But uh, we'll see how that goes. But no, we are not forgetting that book. Nope. Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. 
You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes, uh, see the order in which they rolled out, and see the complete show notes we prepare for you. Uh, we have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can just search YouTube for Mage the Podcast. We're also on Mastodon. Uh, I don't have that link memorized, but it is in the show notes for you. Uh, check us out there. This episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers. Terry, can you share the names of our executive producers? I would be glad to. I would like to thank Oracle Sean Gallagher, Oracle Benjamin Bendelo, Oracle Buck Gregory, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Guy Conan Stewart, Oracle Josh Hillerup, Oracle Puguji, Oracle Neil Patterson, Oracle Jay Widener, Oracle Mikhail, Oracle The Crew of Erebus, Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Margaret Aran, and Archmaster Patrick McNamara, as well as... Alex, Alexia, Andrews S, Anon, Badurfi, Berto, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Sinchatis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, David Roy, Derek Osborne, <laughs> Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fragerock, George Laura, Eobull, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jason Vines, Jake Gatsby, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Lawson Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Poyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Nikita Klamanov, <laughs> Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Schnabel to Krieger, Starfish, Stefan Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, William Connolly, William Martin, Martin, and Zach Rolls. Well, if you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us to keep bringing you episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. And remember, apparently Constantinople is the place that all the demons want to party. So before you invoke the Dark Lord, remember to make sure that the eastern portion of the Roman Empire has fallen. Bye. (laughs) 